to Ephesians chapter 5. We are going to complete, by God's grace, this chapter today, and then we will have one left. We have purposed to try to move through Ephesians so that we both take care with the words that are in front of us, but also move at a pace that will help us to understand these verses in their context. And so we are finding ourselves approaching the end now. In fact, here in this section in Ephesians chapter 5, we find now that the instruction specifically to the corporate entity, the church, the church body, the church family, is coming to essential basic completion at least for about a chapter or so. As we will begin next week in verse 22, we will get into matters of the family, the nuclear family, our families, moms and dads and kids. It's a passage perhaps that you are most familiar with in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. But before that, we are going to finish some final words that Paul has for the corporate entity, the church as a whole. So let's read these verses together, and then we will take some time to explore what they mean and then what they mean for us. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. This is God's Word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God bless to us the reading of his word. So we find ourselves now here in this important passage being reminded by Paul that indeed the days that we live in, this age is perhaps a good way to summarize, this age in which we live is characterized by evil. This does not mean, of course, that there is nothing good around us, but it does mean that by and large as we look around us that it's dominated by people who are evil and do evil things. Paul hinted at this back in Ephesians chapter 2 when he reminded us who we once were when we followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. God in his infinite wisdom and power has allowed his opposer, his enemy, Satan, to have some measure of freedom here in this age, and in some ways he dominates it. As we think of just the sheer number of people that are followers of Christ, as opposed to the sheer number of people that are followers of the evil and that are children of Satan, we are outnumbered. And if we live long enough in the world and participate to some degree in the world around us, we not only know that intuitively, we feel it. And so Paul is 
helpful here as we look back into his day because he reminds this Ephesian church that they live as aliens to some degree. They are not the majority, they are the minority. And as they live among the majority who live in opposition to God, it's going to be difficult for them. Jesus said it well when he said that broad is the path that leads to destruction. And from our perspective, not only is it broad, it seems to be pleasant at times, does it not? Lined with shade trees and places to stop and get drinks and slake your thirst and enjoy yourself along the journey. And then when you consider our path, it looks like it goes straight up a mountain. And if we lose our footing, we might fall off and there's danger and treachery all around us and often we are thirsty and parched and it sometimes seems as though we won't make it. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And so we feel this. It, it feels difficult to, to live in this age. It feels difficult to resist that which is evil because it is so alluring and enticing. And if we're being honest, often it, it just seems easier. But Paul has been careful throughout chapters 2 and now in chapter 5 to continue to tell these Ephesian believers that they must walk in a certain way. Let's see how often he talks about this. Look with me back in chapter 2, verse 2. He says in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and then he says that we walked in them, verse 2. That was the pattern of life we had. But alternatively, now that those of us have come to Christ have a new lifestyle, he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he begins chapter 2 by saying that we used to walk this way, and now God has designed that we walk this way. And as we've been spending time now in chapter 5, we find in verse 2 that we are to walk in love. And Paul goes on throughout this chapter to say more. In verse 8, we are to walk as children of light. And now in verse 15, he says we are to walk wisely. So again and again, Paul is getting up in our business and telling us what to do. One of the great dangers of Western life is the idea that we are individual self-determiners who get to do whatever we want. Christianity in the West has been infected with this disease that nobody should be able to tell us what we do and what we should do, and we just get to do whatever we want. But again and again, as we look into God's Word, even though the law does not save us, we are not receiving merit for the good and righteous things we do, it does matter how we live. Paul took great pains in Ephesians chapters 1-3 through to remind these believers of all the privileges they have in Christ. But then Paul comes to chapters 4 through 6 and tells us what we should do. And so again here in our section for today, Paul not only reminds us of, of how numbing and 
alluring and deceitful sin is, he tells us we are to live in an opposite fashion, not giving in to the darkness, not giving in to the allure and numbing effects of sin, but instead to choose righteousness. For as we have said many times, working through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, there was a design to our redemption. And it was more than just the destination. In other words, our salvation is not just about where we're going to end up. It's how we sojourn along the way to the destination. And so we are reminded once again today, just as Paul did with these Ephesian believers so many centuries ago, that we must take stock of how we are walking. Now before I do that, and I will say this again at the end, our righteousness does not consist of what we do. Our righteousness is, in theological terms, objective. That is to say, God does not accept us as sons and daughters, and parenthetically, this is important on a day like Father's Day. God, our Father, does not accept us as sons and daughters because of what we do. He accepts us as sons and daughters because of what His eternal Son has done. And yet, in light of what the eternal Son has done for us, there is a design to our redemption. That is, that we will walk in a way that pleases our Father. So, first of all today, as those made new in Christ, and we have been using this as a way to lead into the individual instruction of each section of this passage, as those made new in Christ, we must first of all today... Clicker's not working. Now it's working too well. As those made new in Christ, we must approach each day with devotion and discernment. So the idea of the passage is that we are made new in Christ. And now today in verses 15 through 17, as those made new in Christ, we must approach each day with devotion and discernment. Paul is saying in verses 15 through 17 that, that we belong to God. That's the tone of this passage. The reason that he calls them to be careful in discerning how they're walking is because they belong to God. As we read just a few moments ago together in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, what did God design in our redemption? He designed that we would walk in good works. And so we belong to God. As the Scriptures teach us, we were bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. So the underlying tone of verses 15 through 17 is that we belong to God. There is an objective standard according to which we must live. In other words, and, and perhaps this is a bit pedantic, but in other words, we weren't redeemed by the blood of the eternal Son so we could do whatever we wanted. Paul and those that followed his teaching, were accused of this from time to time. This comes out subtly in the book of Romans where Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we, should we keep sinning so grace shines? And Paul's response is, of course not. 
May it never be, God forbid. We've seen this many times in our own hearts. The idea that, well, heaven is sure, right? Because we Christians can't lose our salvation. My pastor taught me that. So therefore, I can do what I want. And it is easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Because after all, God delights in forgiving. Or even if we don't see it in our own hearts, we see it in people around us. If you've ever been perhaps at a prayer meeting of some sort and an elderly mother gets up and asks prayer requests for her son who is living in great sin and she is asking that the people will pray that he will turn from his sin and then perhaps at the end of her request she will add this little addendum. Now, he did ask Jesus into his heart when he was seven, so that's settled, but let's pray that he stops using heroin. Now, can a Christian use heroin? Of course. Can a Christian do bad things? Of course. You and I all do. But we were not saved to just do whatever we wanted, and if we live long enough with no transformation... If there is no repentance that accompanies our regeneration, there is no assurance that there's new birth to begin with. And Paul is calling these Ephesian believers to take stock of how they were living. We do this in our family. My wife is um, very particular in the way that she keeps our finances. Now, she comes by this honestly by her personality, and she did this professionally for quite a while. So sometime during the month, she will say to me, we need to have a financial meeting. And this is nearly every month. The, mo the months where she forgets or she's too busy, I like those months because I don't really like talking about money. But we had one, I think, yesterday or the day before. And uh, she will sit me down, and she will tell me how things are going. And, and somehow we always, like, go over in entertainment. I don't know how that happens, like... I think there's magical money that grows on trees that allows me to buy Chinese food and all this kind of stuff. But she reminds me that we have not gone over. Um, uh, she, we have plenty of money. God takes good care of us. But um, she can be so particular sometimes that if there's like two single dollars in my money clip, she'll say, where did that money come from? Like that, has, that isn't accounted for. And somehow that can go toward like a, a gallon of soy milk or something like that. Um, you know, she's very particular. But you know what that does is it keeps us on track. Because I would go buy Chinese food every day and new baseball equipment. I love to go to Dick's and buy baseball equipment. Um, I, I love to. I, I like to spend money. It's it's like, it's like nice because God's given it to me. But it can quickly trend over into idolatry. And and God has given me an amazing wife who helps keep me and my family on track. We have to take stock of where we're at. It's good for us. It, it tells us what we're treasuring. It it tells us how we're doing. When I was in seminary in grad school, I worked for Target, and it was a really fun job. I would go in at like four in the morning, super early, and I helped run the logistics team that put all the amazing things out that all you ladies like to buy. Um, and, and then I ran the team that set up all the shelves and the new displays and the pricing team. And so I'd get them all situated, and I'd go to class and try to stay awake. It was really hard. My professors would put uh, a can of Pepsi on my desk so that I would stay awake during their lectures, and then I would go back to work. But, but once a year, we had inventory. If you've ever worked retail, you've had to do this. And so we would have to go through the entire store, and there was this 
team that we paid a huge amount of money from and this external company that would come in and scan everything and you had to take great stock of everything that you had in the store. This is the way the company makes sure that things are going well and that theft isn't going to take over and they're not taking great loss. Companies do it. Families do it. Churches should do this. How are we doing? How are we doing in, in the tangible things like, like giving our money? Are we sacrificing our money to, to not only just make budget, but to take care of missionaries like the Matthews who were here last week? To make sure that, planches, that churches continue to be planted in Kenya, that we're reaching into our community. How about the intangible things? These are a little harder to measure. How are we doing in repentance? Do, do we see people changing? Uh, do we see people growing in intangible things like love? And kindness, things that, that take a long time to measure, things that take discernment to measure. And then we have to take stock of ourselves individually, and, and this gets hard. Because often we don't want to look inside at the dark stuff. We don't want to really admit the things that, that we know that are going on that don't please God. Things that perhaps are pretty private. Things perhaps that we're even good enough at hiding from those closest to us. And then I think if we're not careful, we, we stop talking to each other. We, we stop helping one another because we don't want anybody asking us what's going on in our hearts. Conversations that, frankly, seem uncomfortable at first blush. Most of us are not very good at coming to our friend and saying, you know, I had a really rough week. I had to repent of lust this week. I had to repent of, of greed this week. I had to repent of, of heartlessness this past week. How about you? Like, that's not a normal conversation we have, right? Like, you know, a lot of us after the service time today, we'll, we'll get together and we'll look out the back windows, which only I can see right now, and we'll say, mm, it's pretty gray, isn't it? You know, what are you going to do today for Father's Day? And you'll say, well, I'm going to grill, or I'm going to go get Chinese food, and then hopefully take a nap, and you're like, oh, great, good, and then you feel like maybe you've had a friendly conversation and deepened your friendship, and then you haven't really said anything at all. But if we're not pretty careful about taking daily introspective looks inside at the ugly stuff, how are we ever going to help each other with this? But we have to. That's why God has put us together. And Paul is speaking to these people corporately about their corporate identity because who we are individually makes up the body. And so Paul says in verse 15 that we are to look carefully how we are walking, not as unwise, but as wise. So Paul is saying if we are not carefully examining how we are walking and, and by implication making necessary sort of adjustments, then, then we are fools. One of the best things, since it's Father's Day, that my dad ever did for me is to tell me I was a fool. Now, I'm not sure that he ever actually used that word, but as I look back at what he did with me in my discipleship, he was subtly reminding me I was a fool and pointing me to a better way. I had a difficult junior high and then early high school uh, season of life. I, I ran with, like, you know, kind of the cool kids and 
and, and they did all the bad things that stereotypically you think of. And it was really interesting because my parents had these really strict rules, things I was allowed to do and then things I wasn't allowed to do. And my parents were intuitive enough to know that if I hung out with those kids too much, then I would get myself in awful trouble. So there were a lot of things I couldn't do that they were allowed to do, places they were allowed to go that I was not allowed to go. And that brought a divide over time. When you're like fourth, fifth grade and you play baseball with these kids, it's no big deal. You know, you go grab a cone at the little dairy depot after a game and it's fun. But eventually when kids start having more free time and doing things on their own, it can really go off the rails. And so there became this divide that grew over time and my old friendships started to sort of diminish. And I felt very lonely and I didn't know where to go. And so over time, God began to capture my heart and to help me realize that he was my greatest treasure. I, I couldn't have articulated it like that back then, but that's what he was doing. My friendships changed. God put good Christian friends into my life. And then after school, each day, because I wasn't hanging out with the kids from my school, I would go to my church. My dad was the pastor. His office was there. And I would go there almost every single day. And I'm probably overthinking this in my recollection, but it seems like a few times a week, my dad would bring me into his office and carve out time from his busy schedule, because he was very busy, and we would just read the Bible together. He taught me how to study just intuitively. We would read a passage, and he would say, what do you see here? And it's interesting, because as I recall, we spent a lot of time in Proverbs, where David is reminding Solomon, Solomon is recalling this, how David taught Solomon how to live. Some things Solomon kept for some measure of time, some things he abandoned wholeheartedly. But my dad was subtly saying to me, son, you often live foolishly, but you must instead decide that you are going to treasure your covenant God and live wisely, to pay attention to, to how you are living. But you know, we're joking the other day that one of the things that we've said most to our boys through the years, perhaps above all other things, is to pay attention to what's going on around you. It's, it's changed over time. Now we say things like, read the room. You ever say these things to your kids? Like, pay attention to the mood of the room. This might not be the time for a great sarcastic interjection. Um, this might not be time for you to be silly. Pay attention to, to the crowds as you're walking. Um, and when you're in a mall, you don't just barrel through the mall and knock people over. Pay attention to what's going on around you. And then over time, you, you teach them to be even more sensitive about that, to pay attention to people who are hurting, to weep with them, to pay attention to people who are, who are happy, to rejoice with them, to see needs that need to be met and, and to go meet those needs to pay attention to how your life affects other people, to, to live with discernment, to live with wisdom. My dad taught me how to do that. My dad taught me when I was 16 and 17 to stop living foolishly, to stop just barreling through life and doing whatever I wanted, but instead to, to consider the trajectory of my life. When I was a child, we didn't go to the beach. My parents had a Airstream trailer, those silver trailers, we hauled it behind all kinds of different broken down vehicles through the years, but usually we'd make it out there after a couple of blown tires and we'd just park it in the woods somewhere. And we would usually 
park it in a place where we could climb rocks. That was a big thing we loved to do when, when I was a kid with my brothers. And my parents taught me how to do that. Um, we weren't using like fixed ropes and stuff. We uh, probably should have at times, but there were places where we could climb, and my dad taught me how to find handholds and, and footholds. And now that we've continued those things into our adulthood, we've taught those things to our kids. You always have a, a, a three-position rule. You, you never reach for another hand or another foothold until you know that you have three points of good, solid contact. My dad was teaching me how to, to make it in dangerous terrain. And, and that's what we're doing with our lives every day, if we're living wisely. Not just moving along, not just taking the next step or finding the next handhold, but, but paying attention, realizing that, that danger is all around us, recognizing that the call of sinful things, the, the allure of sin is, is always in our ears, it's always in front of our eyes, but paying attention. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of us move through life just barreling through, not paying attention. And what Paul is saying here is if we do that, we're fools. And fools eventually entrap themselves in such a fashion that sometimes it's really hard to extricate ourselves from the messes in which we find ourselves, that, that we have created ourselves. And foolish living, unchecked, may eventually lead to such a mess that it leads to actual destruction. So Paul is saying, live wisely. Don't just barrel through your days mindlessly, numbly, but pay attention because, because the days are evil. And, and because of that, we should make the best use of the time, he says in verse 16. We don't have long to live here. We have the opportunity to either waste our lives or the opportunity to, to make our lives count. And the truth of the matter is that in our sober, quiet moments, perhaps when a good friend does have enough resolve and courage and, and love to talk to us and say, how are things really going? that we recognize that these lives indeed are short. There is great value to each moment that we should count the days, that we should take stock of them and, and not waste them. And in those sober moments, if we're being honest, we would say to our friend, I don't want to waste my life. I, I want to make it count. I want, I want to leave behind a legacy of, of having loved a wife. of having been kind and gracious and merciful to my sons, of sacrificing for and blessing my friends, of, of speaking the good news, the gospel of salvation to my neighbors. I don't want to waste my life. I, I want to take stock of how I'm living. And, and the truth of the matter is this is a daily thing. Because how many of us make it through an entire 24-hour segment of living and not sin? In other words, how many days do you and I actually live where there's not some sin that, that laces our decisions? So what do we need to do today? 
not make some sort of rededication decision that we're never going to sin again and we're going to live perfectly. I grew up in that kind of environment. I grew up in the kind of environment where we did what I now call crisis sanctification. We had these things that we called altar calls. Maybe some of you grew up in this kind of context. I don't think they're necessarily all bad, but you'll notice we don't do them here. And one of the reasons we don't is that because I think it encouraged what, again, I now call crisis sanctification, where you were encouraged to make this massive decision where you decided you were never going to sin again, you were never going to displease Jesus, you were going to use all of your resources of time and talent and treasure, and you were going to pour them all out for the sake of Jesus, and nothing would ever be the same ever again. But the problem was, by the time you got to Monday night, after the Sunday night altar call, you usually had offended God in so many countless ways that you thought, wait a minute, this isn't working. Christian camps did this when I was a kid. Usually by Friday night, after they had gotten rid of your rock music on Monday, your bad friends on Tuesday, your decision to be a wealthy doctor on Wednesday and instead to be a missionary to Togo, and then a couple of other things, by Friday you would go pick up a stick in a pile, and then what would you do with it, those of you who used to go to summer camp? You would go throw it in the fire. And the stick somehow, I guess, represented evil, and you were burning up the stick of wood to represent that all the old choices were gone and now all the new choices were in front of you. Of course, then you went back to your, your home church on Sunday morning and your pastor welcomed you back because you'd just gotten back from camp. And then Sunday night was youth night and you gave testimonies about how things were so different. And then by like Wednesday, it was all over, you know, and somehow the stick had like come back out of the fire and reconstituted. I don't know. That's not how this works. This isn't crisis sanctification. My friends, this is daily stuff. This is daily taking stuff. This is daily repentance. This is daily choosing. So today's Sunday, Saturday. I didn't treasure Jesus like I should have. I didn't read his word like I should have. I didn't talk to him like I should have. I had opportunities to speak the gospel to my neighbor, and I didn't do it. I was unkind and short with my wife and my kids. God, I did it again. Please forgive me, but today's Sunday. And I want to be in your word. I want to talk to you. I want to depend on you. I want to speak your name. I want to reflect your kindness to those around me. So forgive me for what is past and, and now grant me grace to live today wisely and devotedly. That's how this works. It's, it's daily repentance. It's daily living by faith. And, and we can take those deep looks within. Why? Because of what I said to you earlier. Our righteousness does not consist in what we do. Our righteousness consists in Jesus and what he's done for us. So I can be honest about what's inside of me because the verdict is in on me. The gavel has come down on the judge's desk the verdict is in. I am righteous in God's sight, so I can look within. And I need not be overwhelmed by it because my Savior is faithful and kind and is interceding for me. And so I can look and I can repent and I can change because not only is the verdict in, but God lives within me. God's Spirit has taken residence up inside me, which not only grants me wisdom, but grants me faith and power to choose and to follow after righteousness. This is daily stuff. 
This is not a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing where you throw a piece of wood and fire. It's, it's day by day, and we are to help each other with this. And so he says in verse 17, as a reminder, don't be foolish. But instead, alternatively, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, Paul is not saying here that we need to have these periods of life where we figure out who we're going to marry and which college we're going to go to and which street we're going to live in and which job we're going to choose. When we think of the will of the Lord, those are the things we often bring to mind. But Paul means the more mundane, routine, daily kind of things. What is God's will for us? Now, I want to say that God does care who you marry, and God, God does care what job you have and what car you choose and all those kinds of things. Certainly, He does. But what does God mostly care about? What is the will of the Lord for us on a routine basis? It's holiness, uniqueness, holy love, holy faith. Holy repentance, holy treasuring those things which please Him. How do we learn how to do that? Well, let's turn together and look at some passages which might help us. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 6. We referred to this passage a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 119. It's a really long chapter, but let's look into it one more time. These verses are probably relatively familiar to you. I commend them to your attention. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes... Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. What does the psalmist care about? He cares about how he's walking. How can he measure how he's walking? By turning to the Word of God. Let's look together in Proverbs chapter 2. Again, Solomon, reflecting upon what his father, David, a good but imperfect father, taught him. My son, Solomon, was taught, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way or the walking of his saints. God cares how we live. But we need not fear, for he is with us. And if we turn to him in devotion, he will answer us. He will help us. Maybe I can say it this way. Nobody cares more about the way you're walking. Nobody cares more about the glory of God being reflected in your life than God. Likewise, 
There is no one more full of love and power than God. So if God cares about how we're walking, how we are reflecting His glory, and He is full of love and power, why would we not turn to Him, the one who loves us, the one who is always full of authority and strength, and live by His grace to bring Him the glory that He desires? That's sort of simple. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is the way that we are to walk. So it might look like this. Today's Sunday. I go home, and I talk to God. Then I say, I've got several hours left in this day, hours that I do not want to waste, hours that I want to use to bring you glory. And I know that when I bring you glory, I will find my greatest delight. So God, you care how I live, and you love me, and you are full of power, and you have taken residence up inside me by your Spirit. So please, help me. Help me to be kind. Help me to be full of love. Help me to have courage to talk to my neighbor. Help me to choose righteousness and reject the allure of sin. That's how you walk in the Spirit, which we will talk about in just a moment. That is how you live each day by repentance and faith. So, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we resist our tendency to waste our lives and to live foolishly by turning to the word of God and by trusting him and therein we will find his will and thereby we will bring him the glory that he is due. So as those made new in Christ, we must approach each day with devotion and discernment. And secondly, we must worship together as a renewed humanity, the family of God. Let's read these verses again, verses 18 through 21. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, wasted living, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's primary command here in verses 18 to 21 is that we will be filled with the Spirit. That is to say, we will be governed by something. It would have been a tendency in ancient Ephesus to live in a debauchery kind of way, a life characterized by debauchery. That is not a word that we use a lot today. Think of the prodigal son from Luke's gospel. The prodigal son received an inheritance from his father and went out and lived any way he wanted. He, he lived with reckless abandon. The truth of the matter is, it has been pre-programmed into our DNA as image bearers to crave pleasure. Too often in Christianity, we have told people that it is wrong to live pleasurably. That never leads anywhere good. Because you cannot keep people from wanting to find pleasure. The problem is not that people want pleasure. 
The problem is that people are deceived into finding their pleasure in evil things. We'll come back to that in just a moment. What Paul is warning here against is not pleasure. What Paul is warning here against is pleasure found in evil places. Paul is not denouncing alcohol wholesale here. What he's saying alternatively is that if you are controlled by it, if you live with reckless abandon seeking pleasure in the wrong places, that will destroy you. Conversely, we are to be filled with the Spirit or be governed by the Spirit. And that path will lead to pleasure. For the greatest pleasure of all is to know God, to live as a son or daughter of God, to to treasure Him. And, And therein, though the path may be narrow and arduous, we will find our greatest dreams realized, our greatest pleasures fulfilled. Now, maybe not in the ways that we at first imagined. But those of us who have some years of walking with Christ under our belt, who have a little bit of perspective, who can look back at the arduous path and all the winding and bending of the way and the difficulties and dangers along the path, we can look back and say, yes, it didn't turn out all the ways that we thought, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because I have Christ And He is the one who pleases me the most. My sin, it always comes up short. It always overpromises and it always underdelivers. Always. And I say to you who perhaps are younger in the faith or who are doubting today, come along and you will find your greatest pleasures fulfilled in Jesus. It's not just wine, it's other things that extend their wares to us. I think one of the most difficult ones for us who live in the suburban West is is maybe not just wealth, but comfort. Most of us are not wealthy people, but we have plenty, most of us. The great allure of the American dream is, is comfort insulation from danger and, and problems. That's not all bad. I've traveled in a lot of places in the world, and I'm thankful for the things that I have. I'm thankful for clean water. I'm thankful for a roof over my head. I'm thankful for changes of clothes and that I never miss a meal. I don't want to trade that. But the truth of the matter is that those things and others can lead me to have a numb heart and a deadened mind and to worship the idea of comfort more than God himself. So it's not just wine that can control us. It's all kinds of things. Anything that controls your affections and the trajectory of your heart that supplants God as your ruler and provider and satisfier that is dangerous to you. Don't be controlled by that, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And then what will such a life look like? Well, we'll talk to each other in ways that remind each other of God's revelation. Look in verse 19. Those of us who are 
who are walking in the Spirit, those of us who are filled with the Spirit, who are governed by the Spirit, we will talk to each other in such a way that we will remind each other of God. What did Paul want the Ephesian believers to do? To reject self-governance, to reject idols controlling them, and instead to talk to each other about God controlling them. That's what verse 19 is saying. They are to address one another through the Word. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, I don't think this means that our fellowship after the service today should replicate a musical. Like, I can watch a musical once every two or three years. I throw Whitney a bone, and we sit down and watch Sound of Music or La La Land or something like that, right? I can't take too much of that. But even those of you who, who love Broadway musicals, who just live and die on them, you don't talk to each other like this, and, and Paul's not necessarily encouraging that. He's not telling us that we should be chanting to each other or singing to each other like crazy people. But he is saying that we should be so enamored with who God is and how He alone can actually please us that it's not weird for us to get together and sing. I was sitting with a bunch of families last night. We were having an end-of-the-year baseball party last night. There was one other family and Sam's team of 11 kids who probably is in church today. The other nine won't be. And I was thinking to myself, you know, um, I, it's odd just how different we are. Like, I'm going to get up in the morning earlier than them. Um, I'm not going to have, like, fun things planned in the morning. One of my friends, we're friends with these people. We really love them. Uh, one of my friends was saying, you know, we, we got mass out of the way tonight, so tomorrow we can party. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of fun. Um, but I didn't do that. You know, get up early, finish things, you come to church, and, and then you do odd things. Like, we, we sing together as adults. Like, little girls in my neighborhood run around the sidewalks and draw with chalk, and they sing, and you're like, oh, it's fine, they're five, it doesn't matter. But adults get together and sing? That's kind of odd if you think about it. We're not cutting grass or grilling meat right now. We're singing together. It's kind of odd. But why do we do that? Because our hearts are full of joy. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that God sings over His people. How should we respond? We sing. We find in the book of Revelation, praise and honor and singing to the glory of God. What does a heart do when it's overwhelmed? praises. It sings. And what does a collective people of ransomed sinners do? What do we do? How do we express our joy? We sing together. That's why you should sing. That's why we are careful about what we sing here. We sing about God. We sing about the gospel. We sing about the joy that we have in the ways that He's changing us. And we take the truths that we're learning and we speak them back to each other, reminding each other of what is true. This means that we shouldn't waste our conversations. Now, don't think this means you can't ever talk about football or the weather or whatever else. Of course you can. But it does mean that in some measure, a lot of what we should talk about should be things that matter, 
things that encourage and uplift our brothers and sisters and point them to the sustaining and satisfying nature of God. And if we are not doing that, we should repent of that. And we should engage in deliberate, purposeful, perhaps at first awkward conversations so that our words and our conversations matter and count and help and sustain. This brings glory to God and it helps our brothers and sisters. Not only this, verse 20, we are to give thanks always and for everything or maybe perhaps better translated to everyone. In other words, we are thankful for all the people that God has put into our life, even the difficult people. Practicing thanksgiving keeps us from cynicism. It keeps us from selfishness. It keeps us from despair. It keeps us from giving up. I think perhaps subtly we might say that we should be affirming each other consistently for the glory of God. Helping each other, encouraging one another. And then, verse 21, submitting to one another. We will talk in more detail through the rest of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 about, about what that looks like. In what contexts should we submit to one another? This is a good segue into the next section. But in some way or another, as odd as this may seem to us enlightened Westerners who are so individualistic, we should submit to one another. Not caring only about our own good, but about the good of another. Being willing to promote another. Being willing to, to celebrate when they are successful. Being willing to point out the good in another to help foster the good in another, that they might continue to excel. As John the Baptist said about Jesus, the Messiah, he must increase, but I must decrease. Such a spirit that John had was born out in Jesus too. He didn't have to grasp after equality with God, Paul says in Philippians 2. He was God, and yet for a season he set aside his obvious glory to serve us. And as Nissan Matthew reminded us last week of in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man himself came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so as Jesus evidenced and as the great saints have purpose to walk, we are too to set our own prerogatives aside and to lift one another up out of reverence for Christ. What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? It means to be governed by Him in such a way that we remind each other of what's true from God's Word, verse 19, celebrating our redemption. It means that we give thanks to everyone and for everyone, and it means that we live in submission to one another willingly, even though it's hard. So as those made new in Christ, we must approach each day with devotion and discernment, and we must worship together as a renewed humanity, the family of God. How do we apply this? Well, first, we must help each other recognize how deceitful, dissatisfying, and destructive sin is. I chose all three words on purpose. We must help each other recognize how deceitful, as I said to you many times, sin over-promises and under-delivers, how it's dissatisfying, it really won't please us in the end, it always comes up empty, how destructive ultimately it is. Those of us who give ourselves over to sin will eventually find ourselves to have 
wasted our lives. So my brothers, my sisters, I love you and I tell you that sin is deceitful. It lies to you. It always comes with the hiss of its father. It is dissatisfying. It will not ultimately please you that eventually such a path, unguarded, foolishly lived, will lead to destruction. So we remind each other of this. Secondly, and lastly, we must alternatively, in opposition to this, we must remind one another how great and satisfying a treasure we have in Christ. So let's take stock of how we are walking. And instead, let's point each other to Christ. And this will result in all of us being governed by the Spirit, speaking to each other truth about our redemption, living lives of thanksgiving and willingly submitting to one another as followers of Jesus, the great satisfier of the soul. So I encourage you to take stock. I encourage you to live in such a way that you are a positive impact on those around you. And I will say this lastly. We want others to come into this. The truth of the matter is that even people who don't live this way, or perhaps very simply, who don't know Jesus, they're not happy. They might think they are, but they're not. We want other people to come into this. And I will say to you that as this kind of ethic, this kind of atmosphere grows in our community of faith, other people will be intrigued by it. So bring them in. Live in such a way before them that they see what is different. And by the grace of the Spirit, bring them into the community as we live this way together. And may, may God bring others to himself through this as well. He is good. He is the satisfier of the soul. So let us examine ourselves and let us together examine how we are collectively walking. He is purposing to make us into a new humanity, his very sons and daughters. May he be pleased with our lives and may we find our pleasure in him. Let's stand together and let's pray. Holy Spirit, we now ask you to fill us. We ask you to remind us of the great privileges we have in Christ Jesus.